This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Kiran Krishnan, who I've been waiting to talk to for a couple of years now. I met Kiran at a IHF conference in February 2020, where I was told by pretty much everyone at the conference that this is one of the most exciting companies in the microbiome space. And the fierce leader, Kiran Krishnan, was totally extraordinary and I needed to be introduced. So here we are to you, Zeta. A big welcome, Kiran. I'm absolutely delighted to have you join us today. Thank you so much, Yale. Thank you for having me. And it was a pleasure meeting you back in 2020. And we would have never guessed a month after that, the world would end basically, right? So That's right. We went into this deep, dark hole for two years and now we're popping yes. up again. And we thought, yeah, who's it known? So Karen, as I mentioned to you, Cloud Genetics podcast, we'll touch on genetics later. But really, the idea is to find out who you are. I know that you have been an extraordinary leader in the space of probiotics. And the thing that I'm always looking for on, in this podcast is talking to people who really challenged the paradigms of how things were done and went out there and did things differently. And I think that is your story. Um, but if you don't mind, if we can really go back, tell us a little bit about where it began for you, who you are, what you studied, what your journey, and I will try not to interrupt too much because I really want to understand how you went from being to like really academic research to where you are today. And it really is an extraordinary place where you, I won't tell anyone where you are today. I'll leave that for you to tell. Yeah. But really, let's kind of go back to the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at me as a kid, a couple of features of me as a kid is I was always a very curious kid with a burning need to understand the world around me, right? Even as a kid, I it was hard for me to take things for granted. I'll give you an example. I grew up in India and Malaysia before moving to the States. I moved to the States when I was around 14. So I had a good diversity in places that I live, right? Malaysia is a very different country than India. It's an Islamic country, much more modern, more metropolitan kind of setup, but lots of old world traditions still involved. And then India, of course, is one of the oldest civilizations and it's a polytheistic, polycultural Mecca, if you will, with 200 different languages, crazy amounts of different foods and cultures, and then moving to the States, which is a completely different area. And that kind of gave me a diversity of exposure to different things, different ideas, different cultures, different ways of thinking. But one of the things that always stood out for me during all of that is both of those cultures, both Malaysian and Indian, they can be very ritualistic, right? And have a lot of traditions because many of them are pretty old in terms of cultural norms. And for me, I always bucked at the tradition. People would say, well, you do this and then you do this. You go to a temple and you do this. You go to a mosque and you do this. You know, And my question was always, why? Why do we do that? Why do we bow this way? Why do we eat this? Why do we do that? And so I'm sure I was an annoying kid with all of those questions. But that was one of my aspects was I always kind of bucked tradition and always had to have a sound understanding for why things are done the way they're done, right? And if the understanding didn't make sense to me, then I always kind of rebelled against it in some way or the other. 
then the second part of it is that curiosity, that not taking things for granted. I was always wondering why things worked the way they worked. You know, like when I moved to the States, for example, it was the first time I saw a microwave, you know, and a microwave was just fascinating to me, right? We didn't have that in India or Malaysia. And to me, you put a plate of food in there in 30 seconds, it's piping hot. And I'd always ask my friends, like, how does this work? And they would be like, who cares? Like, you put it in. Yeah, you just push the button and it's on, right? But that's the kind of thing that burns at me. I'm like, I got to figure out what this is and how this works, right? And so then I would study on my own on microwave radiation and how that works and realizing like small things, like if you look at the window of the microwave, right? So you can look in at the food, there's always this mesh and this mesh has tiny little holes in it so you can see through it. But the reason for that mesh, it's it actually blocks the microwave radiation and the holes are just big enough where you could see through them, but it doesn't allow the microwave to come through because if the block wasn't there and you're looking in at the food, it would boil your eyeballs, right? And so just like crazy little things that just fascinated me. And so that was always me as a kid. My mom is a medical doctor and she always has been. I was always very curious about the body and how the medicine and science work. I saw all of the like accolades and all that she got from her patients, right? She was a, you know, we're a small town-ish kind of doctor. She worked in hospitals in Malaysia as well, but she had a number of private practices as well, where we'd get people coming in from the villages and all that with like horrific things and she would make them well. And that was so fascinating to me that she knew how to do that. One specific example that just sticks to me all the time, and I think it was a big part that drove my curiosity around medicine and biology and knowing how to fix the body. And I remember this distinctly. I used to always hang out at her clinic because I was always fascinated with the equipment and you know the blood pressure cuff and this, that, and the other, and what she would do. So one day, I'm sitting there at the clinic, and in fact, she named the clinic after me. It was named Clinic Kieran on the sign, right? And so I was sitting there, and this guy hobbles in, and he had dropped something on his toe, and his big toe was just massive, right? It was swollen, and you could tell he was just in excruciating pain. So he hobbles in, his toes like blue and black, and it's huge. And I'm like, whoa, what is she going to do? Like, his toe already looks bad, right? And I'm thinking to myself, like, what is she going to do? Put a cream on it, you know, bandage it. I remember thinking about it as a child. And then he hobbles in, she brings him into the thing. And I'm like, mom, can I watch? And she's like, sure. And then she proceeds to get these tools that look like little medieval torture devices. And she rips his toenail off, right? And I'm like, what are you doing? You're making it worse. Like you're mangling this guy's toe even further. And then she had to poke a hole in the bottom of the nail bed and ooze out all of that blood, right? That's pooling under there. And that was what he needed. And he was like the big relief that you saw on his face because the nail was going to fall off anyway. And you had to relieve the pressure in there. And then she wrapped it up and bandaged it up. And, you know, weeks later, he was perfectly fine, right? So that I remember to me was like, wow, how did she know how to do that? Because that's so counterintuitive, right? And so that stuck with me. So to me, I always wanted to go into the biological sciences. And my dad is a, a was, he's passed away a few years ago, but my dad is a microelectronics engineer. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, he's a very outside of the box thinker, right? My dad had over 200 US patents in his name. Oh, wow. Things having to do with memory chips, right? That was his specialty. So almost every electronic device we have has some thing within the memory space that he invented. Remember, to have a kilobyte of memory used to be like a suitcase size 
hard drive, right? Now you can have terabytes in a tiny space. And that's his specialty was shrinking memory chips. And so he was this like complete innovative outside of the box thinker. You know, not only would he invent new memory chips, but he would actually invent the machinery to make it because the machineries didn't exist to make these new things. So he was very sought after in his field for that. So to me, like my brain was a combination of the two, you know, I love the biological science. I love what my mom did. And and there was a lot of drive for this wanting to help people. But then I also was stubborn and I was also always bucking the norm, always very curious, and then always try to think about things in different ways, you know, kind of taking the approach my dad did, you know, so systems biology plus engineering, like innovative, inventive thinking was a good fit for me. So for me, the microbiome became that space, right? Because the microbiome is biology. The microbiome is medical science. It's all about hopefully helping people, right? But then it's also this like new frontier where there's lots of discoveries to be made, where there's lots of new ways of thinking about this invisible universe that's super complex and you know, has so many variables that impact it. So it became like a natural space for me. I went to college knowing that I was going to study something in the biological sciences. And I chose microbiology really because of a movie and really because of pandemics. Really? Yeah, it was actually because of pandemics. It was my goal early on was I wanted to be a virologist working at like the CDC chasing pandemic virus, you know, because I watched this movie called Outbreak my first week at school, right? And yeah, I don't know if you remember that movie with Morgan no, Freeman, Hoffman. Yeah. Okay. So it was a pandemic virus that yeah. broke out that came from a, it was like a simian virus of some sort. And it started infecting the town and the military wanted to just blow up the whole town. But these virologists were chasing around looking for a cure. That looked really exciting to me. So I went And I enrolled in the School of Microbiology and I studied virology a lot for that reason. But what started happening is as you're studying microbiology and you're getting into the clinical side of microbiology, what you start to realize is there's a lot of focus on organisms that make you ill. But at the end of the day, it's probably less than 1% of all the organisms out there that can actually make you ill, right? So 99 plus percent of organisms we encounter or live on us and within us and around us, either are supportive or benign, right? And the less than 1% gets a lot of limelight. A lot of media, yeah. Exactly, a lot of media. And then ultimately for me, again, bucking the norm, I'm like, well, why do I want to be another person? Studying virulent viruses, yeah. Exactly. What about the other 99%? We don't know much about them. And also my logical thing at that point was like, probably the best way to control the 1% is to allow the 99% to flourish, right? And we see that. There's lots of evidence. I mean, that is exactly spot on, ahead of the time. Yeah. Absolutely. And any environment where we sterilize and really hinder the 99%, we see the 1% thrive, right? Hospitals, for example, right? Any overly sterilized environment has that major risk of that 1% really thriving. And so... I started working on studying and focusing my career on that 99%. And then shortly after I started doing that, we started hearing about the human microbiome project. And that became a perfect fit, right? Because for me, it checked all the boxes. Number one, 
It was really about studying the commensal organisms and the benign flora that exists that really impacts our outcomes. And then it was a frontier in biology, which kind of fits my mindset, right? So that's really how I got into it. Wow. Okay. You know, lots of little variables, but all of those things have accumulated. If the Human Microbiome Project, if I chose not to go into biological science, the other area I was going to go into, which to me has a lot of analogies to microbiome science, is quantum mechanics. So I was a huge fan of quantum mechanics with physics, right? The study of the subatomic particles and that whole mysterious world of quantum mechanics. And so if the biological side didn't really draw me, then I think I would have done that. But I'm very grateful that you chose the microbiome instead. I think a whole bunch of us are. Yeah, Yeah, me too. And because that level of mathematics is not one of my strong suits. And so I probably wouldn't have done a whole lot in the world of quantum mechanics but, you know, I have a better chance of making some sort of impact in the world of microbiome. I think you have. So let's talk about that, right? So you've become an expert in this world. Of, you understand things about the microbiome that took us another couple of decades to understand, which is about the 99.1%. And so I'm assuming you could have chosen to carry on studying them and, you know, moving into CDC or, I mean, back, you somehow land up building one of the most innovative businesses in the space of microbiome. So tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it is also for me just being a cynical person in certain ways, right? So I'm in this world of academics and we're chasing grants, we're doing research. One of the things that really bothered me about the world of academics is the big translational gap between what we're doing at the university to will this ever impact somebody, right? Yeah, that's my world of genetics as well, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? That translational gap is so big. And what you start to see inevitably is your role in the world of academics is to continuously chase more research, right? Which means you're chasing more grants, which means that everything you do inevitably is skewed towards continuing to ask more and more and more questions. And the questions more often just get more and more and more in depth. Right. And then when you look at it and you go, there's probably a massive percentage of all of the work that happens at universities that never becomes anything that impacts people. And you see that then when you start to realize I had a friend that started working with the IP division at the University of California systems. Right. They have so many universities in the University of California systems, UCLA and all these famous ones. And they have probably one of the largest treasure troves of patents that nobody's ever done anything with, right? There's, in fact, businesses that you can hire to search all of their IP to look for options to license technologies to try to bring things to market because they have hundreds of thousands of patents that just sit there that were discovered on university property during university time, right? And so then you can't do anything commercial with it unless another company realizes it comes in and tries to license it and all that. So just those kind of things, it became obvious to me that if I wanted to have an impact during my time here, then I had to be an industry. And in fact, I need to be an industry working with universities to bridge that translational gap. So my leap into the company side, the business side, was all about how do we bridge that translational gap? How do we take what is happening in microbiome research at the university level and start to make it relevant, start to create products, start to study products, making those leaps, right? So that we can actually impact people. 
So that was the whole motivation of it, is just seeing that problem at that academic level. And was Microbiome Labs your first company? I mean, it sounds very intentional and very kind of curated. Like you seem a very intentional person. I love that about you. And very careful about your decision making. So was Microbiome Labs, the company I know, was that the first company? It wasn't actually. So I had two other companies before that. One of the companies was really a, a research company. It's called LiveSmart. And the idea behind it was I wanted to make clinical research accessible and affordable for supplement companies. As a user of supplements, I was always the guy that's calling the companies, asking them about the research around their products and so on, you know? <laughs> you must have been that person, right? Totally, yes. Yeah, it's like, oh no, not Kieran again. Uh, can someone else take the call? And I come to find out, you know, later on that it's hard for supplement companies to do research. Research is expensive. There's risk involved if your product may not work. So what do you do then? Very few supplement companies can afford to do a half a million dollar trial, a million dollar trial to find out their product doesn't work. And then the big part of it is even if you find out it works, what can you say about it? Because you're restricted on your languaging on claims, right? So for example, if I did a 5,000 patient study on a vitamin that reduced blood pressure and it was a world-class design study and there's absolutely no doubt it works to reduce blood pressure, I can't say anything about it, right? So what's the point of doing the study? And so the paradigm I was shifting in that is that supplement companies, when they looked at studies, they looked at the pharmaceutical model of studies, uh, the standard randomized controlled trials with the disease endpoints, right? Which really doesn't work for nutrition so well, right? It doesn't, right? It's a total contradiction to what the whole nutritional space is. But the mindset was that in order for it to be a valid study, we have to have a certain N, certain size, right? And then we have to look at the disease endpoints. But then you can't talk about the disease endpoints. And in fact, the FDA doesn't actually allow you to study disease endpoints with nutrition. It has to be a drug for you to do that. So there's this quagmire. And so I started designing trials, what I call kind of smart or clever trials, where we would focus solely on structure function elements within a disease process, right? And things that have far fewer placebo-like effects. For example, if you study the endpoint of blood pressure, there's a number of variables and placebo components to modulating blood pressure, right? Just right. white coat syndrome alone, walking into the doctor, it's going to go up, right? Exactly. I was thinking of that. Yeah. Exactly. And so, but how else can you study blood pressure? Well, you can look at angiotensin renin pathways. You can look at biochemical changes without ever measuring. So bringing it to the biochemistry level, right? Exactly. Yeah. Bring it down to biochemistry, bring it down to the mechanism, right? And so, and never measure blood pressure, right? Forget the part about measuring it. Let's look at the changes in these people's angiotensin renin pathways. And so for those things, you could power those studies with much smaller ends. You could also pilot those better. So I could do seven, eight patient pilots at very low cost to see, can we get any sort of movement? And get an absolute answer, yeah. Exactly, and get an answer without them. And that's like a, you know, $10,000, $12,000 investment to see if it might work versus a $100,000 investment. And so that was my whole thing is like, I want to change the paradigm of how supplement companies look at research so that we can do smaller, more smart and effective studies and really talk about the mechanism, because that's really what the FDA allows you to do anyway, right? Supplement claims are called structure function claims. You can talk about how you alter the structure or the function 
of a process without talking about the disease endpoint. And so I got heavily involved in the supplement industry because I started doing studies like that for a couple of companies, then word kind of got around. So that became my first actual company is I was not only designing and running clinical trials for companies, but then because they would know me as a science guy that really thinks about the products in a mechanistic standpoint and so on, and kind of connecting the dots on disease process or mechanism, then they would hire me to consult for them on product development ideas, right? So that was my foray into it. And then I discovered a couple of compounds that I became super passionate about. One was vitamin K27. I was one of the first people to start talking about vitamin K27 in the U.S. This was back in 1999. And then, and then natokinase. Wow. That was a while ago. Sorry, what was the second one you mentioned? The other one was natokinase, which is an enzyme, which is a fibrolytic enzyme, has amazing history of use and some really good clinical data on reducing systemic inflammation. It's part of Japanese traditional food called natto. Oh, a food of nano, right. Yeah, it's the food of the warriors, right? The samurai. Yeah. The folklore is that the food is actually fermented soybeans on rice and it's awful. I mean, it smells as bad as you would think. Smelly and yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, it is spoiled fermented soybean. And I'm guessing this is all about feeding the gut, right? Feeding the microbiome. Totally. And it's also microbes. So natto is a very well-known, powerful food consumed for 2,000 years in Japan, mostly in the Western region of Japan. Lots of actual epidemiological studies around natto consumption and looking at things like blood viscosity, blood pressure, osteoporosis, because natto is also the highest amount of natural K27 found in any given product. But it's a fermented food. It's fermented by Bacillus subtilis. And the folklore is that there's a samurai legend named Miramoto. So what the samurais used to do, which were nomadic guys, they used to carry their soybeans in these wheat sacks on the side of the horses, and they would travel great distances. But when it rained and things like that, the wheat sacks would get wet, and then they would open it and it'd be fermented, right? Because of these environmental bacteria we get in there, bacillus in particular. So they used to feed this obnoxious smelling fermented spoiled soybeans to their horses. And the horses would eat it and get really strong and have better coats and all that. And so then the samurai started eating it from seeing this. So the first person credited with eating natto was this world-famous samurai in Japan named Miramoto. And they always said the folklore is it took the courage and the bravery of a samurai to eat this for the first time, right? <laughs> it's not bad, right? It's, it's that, that bad. bad, right? It is. And so for 2,000 years now, nano has been written about in books and all that in Japan about being this amazing food. And as it turns out, it's a fermented soybean with bacillus, and it's super high in natokinase. It's super high in vitamin K27. It's very high in PQQ which we know has huge impact on at the cellular level for the mitochondria and all that. It's got a number of peptides like dipolonic acid and so on. It's very rich in micronutrients. It also has like chitin. It's really good for the gut microbiome. It's basically similar to what would happen to a basic substrate like soy or any sort of legume in your gut if you had bacillus in your gut, right? And so that was a huge turn on to me in excitement. And I was like, I've got to bring a version of natto or at least the key components right. of the US. So vitamin K27 and bacillus subtilis and uh, natto kinase became my goal. So I built a ingredient development company 
to work on manufacturing and the production of those three active ingredients. And so we built that and we started importing those as ingredients and distributing it through the supplement industry. So I had those two companies. Okay, the research and then the ingredients. Yeah, those were the two that I had. I ended up just once I got busy enough with the ingredient company, I started slowing down the research company and then eventually ended up closing that. And then I ended up selling the ingredient company a few years after we started Microbiome Labs because then Microbiome Labs became sole focus. And then that's how it came about. So Microbiome Labs technically was a third official company. And how, how long ago did you found Microbiome Labs? 2013, we launched. So not too long ago. We're only in uh, year nine. Not even 10 years. So now I just have to ask you before we carry on, this nanokinase nano product, is that yeah. still part of the offer of Microbiome Labs? Because like, I would love to try something like that. We don't offer it, no, because we sold off the rights to the product to a different oh, company. Okay. It's still in the market today, which is great. And there's a good amount of utilization of it. But other people sell that active uh, Okay, so it now. didn't land up being part of Microbiome Labs when you... But K2 did. But K2 did. We ended up bringing K2 with us. Yeah. Okay. I really want to talk about microbiome labs. Let's just focus here for a minute because this is really now where I meet you. Yeah. Where I'm told that there's this company and we know there are a lot of companies in the microbiome space, right? Let's just yeah. say that. It's the same as my world where there's a lot of genetic companies and my thing, but yeah. there's genetic companies and genetic companies and the microbiome companies and microbiome companies. So tell me about microbiome labs and what defined you as being different because you really did stand out and I'd like you to share about what was your vision for this company? And we know that it's been sold and you're part of a new bigger organization now. But tell me about what is the story of Microbiome? And was it, again, intentional? Was it curated or did it evolve over time to be something different from what you intended? It was. It was quite curated from the beginning. And when I say curated, I mean, we established a certain set of principles that we said we wouldn't bend against no matter what the business opportunity, no matter how at risk the company seemed, we have to stick with the principles. And we said to ourselves that if we couldn't make this company work under these set of principles, then we are not going to have a company. You know, we were pretty stubborn about that. It wasn't about financial success. It wasn't about building a company that scaled and grew and made people a bunch of money. It was truly about really utilizing science to understand and take advantage of the power of the microbiome to make people better. It became very clear that there's a lot of healing opportunities when we focus on the microbiome for lots of conditions that we would think would be incurable or hard to treat or you know something that people would have to live with the rest of their lives, right? If you look at it from the lens of the microbiome, there's lots of opportunity there to improve it. So knowing that, and number two, also wanting to set a high standard and a new bar for companies in our space. And that is so important because the thing that I learned consulting for companies or being that involved in the supplement industry is that there are just too many companies in our space that are here to make a quick buck. And the vast majority of companies are run by marketing groups. Yeah, we have exactly the same experience with genetics, right? It's totally, yeah. Copy and paste and slap a brand on it, you know? And that undermines all the hard work of the groups that are really trying to up-level. So it's exactly the same. And, and I think you saw the same thing, a proliferation of probiotics and microbiome yep. in the marketplace, cheap and cheerful, sitting on every single shelf possible. And you came Absolutely. in and said, we're going to do things differently. 
we have to do things differently, right? So I actually was hired by a large multinational company, my research company. This was in around 2008, 2009. We were hired to study the probiotic marketplace because they wanted us to create a recommendation for a new probiotic, right? And so they were looking at all their competitors, things in the refrigerator, the 50 billion, 60 billion, 100 billion, that whole approach, you know, 25, 30 strains and all that. They really wanted us to do an assessment to, to give them feedback as to what is the right approach for probiotics. And so that caused me to dive headfirst into the probiotic space from a microbiology standpoint. And you come to find out pretty quickly that all of it is nonsense. You know, it's just megalomaniacal thinking. There's no scientific rationale that you have to have 100 billion CFUs of these 25 strains. And somehow you throw these kitchen sink formulas together. You put like 15 things in there and they're all supposed to work in harmony to help your gut, you know, especially without doing a single study on any of that to know that it does anything in the system. And then looking at all the refrigerated products itself, right? To me, that just bugged me as someone with some basic science understanding is like, wait a minute, if it can't survive at room temperature on the shelf, it's dying too fast. It's 98.6 degrees in the body and probably one of the harshest environments for microbes. It's the gastric system is designed as a barrier to microbes. Right. So these dainty microbes that can't sit at 70 degrees Fahrenheit at the shelf, how are they surviving through this gauntlet? And they're not. So we took like 40 of the top selling probiotics and we put them through gastric system and we saw that 98 percent of them just were obliterated. Right. It didn't matter if they had 50 billion, 100 billion, 200 billion. All of it was dead. And so the promise of the power of probiotics was not being realized in the market. And one of my genuine concerns was that if people don't start coming out with better, well-researched, well-thought-out products, that some of these products are going to hurt people. And then that's going to completely destroy the probiotics. And then the whole industry really collapses, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And overnight, new companies were popping out. I would be online, right? Yep, I put it the mushroom effect. Exactly, it's crazy. I would wake up every single morning and see a new genetic, and I still do. Every single day, I see another genetics company every single day. Yeah. And in your space, you know, you've got the Silicon Valley funded type of genetic companies that pop up that do tens of millions of dollars with the marketing. Yeah. Tens of thousands, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it's all black box technology. And they're testing hundreds of thousands of genes, you know. Yep. And it's all black box technology. They don't say how they do any of it. You know, there's just so much nonsense in our field. And the sad thing about it is all of this stuff, if done correctly, has huge promise to be able to help people, right? So we came in and we said, okay, we're changing the paradigm of probiotics. We're going to create a probiotic that we believe will work well. And our belief is not enough. We have to prove it through scientific research. And not only do we want to prove that it works for whatever endpoint we're going after, we also have to know how it works, right? Because if we don't know how it works and we can't explain to some degree the mechanism, then we're not really elevating the science. We're not really providing enough cachet. We're not really providing enough substance to say that the product is important for people to take, right? And so the principles were, we're going to always spend far more on research than we will on marketing. In fact, we did not hire a marketing person until six years into the development of the company wow. for that reason, right? And we never put a CEO in place. 
I took on the title of chief science officer. My business partner, Tom Bain, took on the title of president, which is a, a presidents tend to be operational chief science officer instead of CEO, because we didn't want the company being led with the mindset of an executive, business executive. We wanted science to be in the bus, right? And people always ask us, well, who's your CEO? We're like, we don't have one. We don't want the company run from a business perspective. We want the company run from a science perspective, right? And the other principles that we had were, we're only going to do things of significant need. I don't care how hot it is in the market. Like, oh, everybody has a collagen protein product. You know, like every supplement company puts one out now. We don't care. You know, there's a $10 million opportunity in it. We're not going to do it if there's not a significant need. In addition to that, we always put science first, right? So we said we have to know what our products do, how they work. We have to validate it. We have to feel very good that they're powerful tools. And then the biggest part of it is we have to educate, right? It becomes our job to get out there and speak and educate and empower people with information and knowledge. And so in 2019, for example, before the pandemic shutdown conferences, as a company, we did 160 conferences that year. And I myself spoke at 56 conferences that year, along with all of the online webinars and all that stuff. So well over 120 talks that year. But it's all about educating and empowering, getting the information out there, right? And the information is not just about our products. It's really around the microbiome science, Mm -hmm. right? Because this stuff is hard for even practitioners to understand. They never trained in it. They didn't learn it in school. And so this is this important things that we have to do. We never took a dime of investment. Yes. You told me that the day I met you and I was blown away. I was like... Yeah. And we scaled the company within eight years to about 130 employees without doing that. We did it all grassroots and we feel like we built something of value. And then we had one of our third partner, we had a third kind of silent partner who was older than us, older than Tom and I. His name is Dale Kriz. And he was, you know, he's getting to his mid seventies and it was time for him to find an opportunity to exit and, you know, kind of enjoy his time more with family and all that. So we started looking for a partner to come in to buy out his stake. And we're like, if we're going to do that, let's look for a strategic partner that can really put rocket boosters on what we're already doing. But what we came to find out soon is that most companies that we'd want to partner with aren't interested in buying a third of a stake. They want to buy the whole thing. Buying the whole thing, yeah. Yeah. And so then we were looking for, okay, we we want to find a partner that's willing to buy the whole thing, but then also they want us to stay on board to keep running it the way we envisioned. So we found this amazing biotech company called Novozymes, or the largest enzyme manufacturer in the world. They are a spin-off from Novo Nordisk, which is one of the top five pharma companies in the world. But they spun off 50 years ago as a division that started building enzymes as technology. But the biggest aspect of Novozymes is they're really a big biotech company. They spend somewhere around 15 to 18% of their gross revenue on research, which is very high. And they have somewhere around 130 PhD researchers massive capability with biotech and biohealth research. And they really wanted to get into the bio, a human health space is their new frontier. So they were very interested in the acquisition of microbiome labs because they want to advance the microbiome component of human health. They have all the resources and capabilities to do the research. They were super impressed that we've already had done and published more than a dozen studies on our own. And so they were like, this is a perfect partnership. Let's bring our strengths and resources to what you're already doing. 
And then let's partner up and you guys run the business, we'll support the business. And so it became a, a great deal, a great way to give our third partner, Dale, a, a nice exit, but then also put rocket boosters on what we are yeah. earning. And that's, I mean, it sounds a, a beautiful partnership. So when was that deal? We closed it in January of 2021. Okay. So we're like a year, year and a half. Okay. So I've kept you talking for a long time. So I'm just going to have two more questions for you. Of course. Because it's such a fascinating story. And I think I'm personally indulging myself here because it's just, there's so many parallels in our journeys. You know, you in the microwave space, me in the genetic space of, you know, trying to do things better and raise the industry and have hold some really strong kind of criteria on the way we do things. But two more questions. One is you clearly are deeply thoughtful and care about the decisions you make. You have incredible ethical boundaries around your decision-making, which is so wonderful to hear in this industry. What is the future looking like for the next decade for you in terms of where do you think we're going with the space that you're in in the next decade, just as a kind of broad blue sky? Yeah, I think one of the limitations of the space that we're in is we touch a relatively small number of patients, right? So we service the integrative medicine, holistic health market. And even though it seems like a large market, it's still only a tiny fraction of the typical patients that are walking around, right? Vast majority of patients are still within this conventional allopathic type systems. So for us as an industry to make a huge impact, we really have to bleed into that allopathic space a little bit more. And the microbiome is probably the best route to do that. And the reason for it is this, because holistic doctors or integrative doctors never got training on the microbiome, right? They don't, them it's very new. Same with allopathic doctors, right? Same with naturopaths, same with chiropractors, right? Everyone is new to this space. And so everyone is kind of at the same learning point. Now, holistic and integrative doctors are probably more open-minded about this. Yeah, and they're making the effort to learn about it. They're making the effort to learn. But what I'm starting to see is that allopathic doctors, because of the interest around the microbiome with pharmaceutical companies, that they're becoming more and more aware of it as well, right? And they're becoming aware from it from a couple of different angles. For example, the do no harm angle, where they're used to think of writing antibiotic scripts as nothing. They're safe, no problem, take it. Now they're starting to realize and more restrictions are coming on on use of antibiotics because it does hurt the microbiome. Dermatology is a great example of that. There's been new guidelines because dermatologists use long-term antibiotic treatments for acne and all that, you know, 300 days on being an antibiotic to try to get rid of pimples. Now there's new guidelines as to how you have to go about doing that because they're trying to be more cautious around the harm that it can create. So we are seeing more and more interest from allopathic doctors to understand this whole microbiome concept. And then also in some small way, utilize a tool or two that is related to the microbiome to help their patients. And so probiotics have made that venture in a decent way. There are some well-known probiotics that have penetrated the hospital space, right? Doctors in hospitals are recommending the consumption of yogurt, for example, to prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea. There are a couple of prescription probiotics that have been created to prevent things like antibiotic-associated diarrhea. There's a lot of probiotic work going on in C. diff. There's a good-sized public company that has developed a probiotic to deal with C. diff. 
So that company is at a $500 million valuation right now. And so Cirrus Therapeutics, that's the name of the company, right? So we're starting to see these inroads into the allopathic space, and we're making them ourselves because we're developing technologies in certain areas where allopathic doctors can more easily understand them and then also don't have a great option from a pharmaceutical standpoint, right? So then they're willing to try things like a probiotic in that space. And so we're doing that. We're working with a couple of market partners to get more into the allopathic space because what we want to do is over the next 10 years, make microbiome therapeutics much more mainstream and not just within this niche of holistic health, integrative health, because as it becomes more mainstream, then we're going to be able to impact more people, right? So that becomes a whole goal. And I think we will get there. We're already yeah. seeing great inroads that way. Yeah. And I would say, you know, just so again, that's definitely the same realization we're having, which is we love being in the integrated functional space because, you know, kind of preaching to the converted. But if you look at the consumer is asking for these answers and yeah. the allopathic medical system has to have the answers. So it, we're seeing it being driven by the consumer and we need to obviously be there to, to provide those answers. So I think, again, you know, low-hanging fruit, but the reality is we need to have more impact. So I would agree with that. I'm excited to see how you spread your wings in that front. All right, so let's try it out. So this is the Power of Genetics podcast. And I know today we haven't touched on genetics, except where I keep on telling you why I think our journeys have been similar. But, you know, you and I have chatted a little bit about, and we didn't talk about the actual microbiome test that you've been a part mm-hmm. of. And I'm sorry we haven't. We might have to come back to it because, again, it was another place where you really innovated and pushed boundaries, but we'll have to talk about that another time. And just to let you know, I actually have just done my test. and waiting for my results. Awesome. But let's just finish off and say, like, what do you think the relationship is? and Or even just any commentary around the role of genetics in the space of health, in the future that you and I have just been talking about, in allopathic versus not just functional? I mean, what role do you think we'll be playing in the future of health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if we can wrap our minds and capabilities around understanding genetics, I think that then provides us the important code for how biology happens, right? Because biology doesn't happen without genetics. You know, you don't get protein without mRNA. You don't get mRNA without sequencing that occurs in the cells. Everything that happens in biology happens through genetics. And understanding genetics becomes, to me, the absolute code. That's when you can see the matrix, right? And that's when you can really understand what is happening in at the biological cellular level. So to me, genetics has to be a continuous pursuit. And what's exciting and what we're pursuing is the, the genetics of the microbial system that sure. impacts us. And, you know, and it, to me, it marries so well and importantly with the genetics of our own cells, right? Because ultimately, when you combine them, those are the genes that dictate your outcome. That overlap of where your genetics stop and where the microbial genetics start. And the interplay and that dance and relationship between the two is obviously where health or ill health is happening, right? Exactly. And here's another, this is a reason why, Another big reason why we were very excited with, about Novozymes, the, the company that acquired us, is because they have a massive investment in data science around genomic, right. Yeah. right? That's a huge play for them. And one of the things I talked to them about early on, even prior to closing the deal, which is something you and I have talked about, 
when we met was this whole idea of understanding the whole you by taking your nutrigenomics, right, your own genetics, and then overlaying that with the microbial genetics of your microbiome. And then looking at gene expression and protein. Yeah, exactly. And then doing the metabolomics and so on. And then that gives you a true metabolic picture of where you are. And that's a massive problem to tackle from a data and a science perspective. But, you know, a company like Novozymes has the capability and resources to be able to do that. So that was another very exciting reason for us to partner with them. But yes, I think we stand no chance of really understanding and altering biology for human health without understanding genetics. So that has to be a continuous pursuit. Yeah, I get the question a lot. Like, what is the relationship between the microbiome and genetics? And it's like, that microbiome is living inside the human being and interfacing all the time with every single cell that lines that gut from the mouth, the nose, all the way through to the end. That it's this interplay between the signaling molecules that are coming from the microbiome coming into our genetic variability and then changing gene expression. So, you know, we cannot be having these conversations separately. And I believe that it's going to be a really exciting conversation going forward about how these two systems are, are talking to each other. And then I really believe that's a lot of how we see health. Karen, Christian, thank you so much. I have used up way more time than I promised you, but it was just such an incredibly fascinating story. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people who, who know your company and, and would love to hear what you've just told me. It was certainly just so insightful for me. And I look forward to seeing how your work with Nova Enzymes and Microbiome Labs continues, because I have absolutely no doubt that you really are going to continue to innovate in this space. So again, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Elda. Really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again at a conference or something. Oh, yes. I will be doing, hopefully, in the next couple of months, back on the conference circuit. So I don't know where, we'll check in and see if there's there's any of them that will be at the same place at the same time that would be great excellent thank you so much thanks Karen thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3x4 Genetics for more episodes please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast and if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.